Amen. Amen. Before we pray, uh, let me say this. Uh, I was, as we were singing that last song, maybe with a few change of words, I imagined the father singing that song to his son as he walked this earth. My name is Pastor Matt. I'm one of you elders here at Refuge. It's my privilege and delight to get to help you know, love, and obey Jesus this morning, primarily by looking at the passage here at First Peter, verse 5, hello, hello, verse 5, 5 through 6, there we go, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, as we study your word this morning, Father, may we, by your grace, empowered by your grace and focused on your grace, may we be the humble people that you've called us to be. And Father, when we are not and when we are prideful, Father, may we look to the mountain and see your love that was poured out on us through your Son, Jesus. And may our pride be melted away. Father, ask this of you this morning through the power of your Son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. The main point for today is simply this phrase. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. When I say humble yourselves, what I mean is you all, each individually, including myself, take action to humble yourself. Take action to humble yourself. Something we must actively do. Later we'll talk about him saying, clothe yourself. This is something that we take steps to do. It's not something we simply sit around and wait on. But it's something we do actively. And so the main point today is humble yourselves. The first thing I want you to see if we jump right into this passage is this. The broad problem of pride. The broad problem of pride. Quoting someone who was quoting William Carey. He says this, the pioneer missionary William Carey wrote a letter to one of his sons on the occasion of Carey's birthday. And William Carey says this, he goes, I am this day 70 years old, a monument of divine mercy and goodness. Though on a review of my life, I find much, very much for which I ought to be humbled in the dust. My direct and positive sins are innumerable. My negligence in the Lord's work for which I ought to be humbled in the dust. I'm sorry, sorry, there we go. My negligence in the Lord's work has been great. I have not prompted His cause, or promoted His cause, nor sought His glory and honor as I ought. Notwithstanding all this, I am spared till now, and I am still retained in His work. I trust for acceptance with Him to the blood of Christ alone. If you're not familiar with William Carey, He went to India in 1793, 
he worked without much rest, with not even a tenth of the resources and support that he needed. He taught, he translated the Bible in whole or in part into 40 languages or dialects. And he's the one saying, though on a review of my life I find much, very much, for which I ought to be humbled in the dust. My direct and positive sins are innumerable. My negligence in the Lord's work has been great. I have not promoted his cause nor sought his glory and honor as I ought. I will trust my acceptance before God to the blood of Christ alone. How could Cary possibly fault himself for sinfulness and the sloth and lacking humility ultimately? I think this letter seems strange to us today because so many of us do not fight the fight against pride. It's almost as if we've even embraced pride as a way of life, even in Christianity. We're all about things like, you know, don't be too hard on yourself for your sin. You need to think positive. Just consider Jesus. Or don't be discouraged by your sin. It's okay. Jesus has it. I mean, what does that even mean? Now, don't talk too much about my sin. Just talk about the gospel. Just give me the gospel. I just want to know how awesome Jesus is. Or if you have to talk about sin, that would press in on my pride. Don't hit too close to my home. Or don't linger on it too long. However long is too long. Or another issue, we think our primary problem often is that we're simply discouraged, depressed, or we're all suffering, or or we just need Jesus to give us some happy thoughts. Certainly those items are truly potential. We do face discouragement and depression and suffering, sometimes from within and sometimes from without. But don't forget the context of our passage this morning. Don't miss the forest for the trees. He's speaking about pride and humility to a people in legitimate persecution or about to be in persecution. And he has the gall to someone suffering to call them to humility. Maybe Peter should just sit with them a little longer. I would argue our biggest issue, according to the Scriptures, isn't these things. Our biggest problem is more in line with a passage like Psalm 10.4. I'll read the NIV version here. It says, In his pride the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts there is no room for God. With pride and wickedness there is no room for God. That is our Biggest problem. Our pride separates us from our God. Our pride separates us from our God. For some, this is an eternal reality. This will be the case for all of eternity. That their pride 
has and will forever separate them from their God. For some, those who recognize this and have clinged to the cross of Jesus still experience this seasonally or momentarily. Moments in a day or weeks at a time where pride is separating us practically from our God. Not in an eternal reality sense, but in a practical daily living sense. There is no room for God among the prideful. Because there is no room for God, the proud do multiple things, but certainly they do the following. The proud stand in judgment over God and others. They know what's best. They can, on their own, perceive what is right and wrong, just like Adam and Eve. They already have it figured out. You understand, that's, that's what was going on with Adam and Eve. That's where you and I stand every morning as we wake up. It is either the Lord knows what's best today, or I know what's best today. It's either the Lord is the one who is capable and right and worthy and glorious and just to be the one to decide what is right and wrong, or it is me. The pride have it figured out. They, that's why there's no room for God. There's no need to seek because they have already found all there is to find, and it's all contained internally. The answer is within. The proud even stand like Pharisees, setting their own right and wrong, both for themselves and those around them. Ultimately, so that they can stand proudly in judgment and self-righteousness of those around them. The proud, if someone points out sin... To paraphrase someone here, the proud cry things like this, special circumstances, you just don't understand. I didn't mean it that way. That's just my experience. The way you called out my sin wasn't caring. Why are you so critical? Where's the grace? And when people who are stuck in their pride, they love to throw the stone of pride. You know, some sins are clear. Like visibly clear. You can see them. But some sins are hidden. Pride and self-righteousness are just that. Because awareness of sin is precisely what the proud lack. At best, pride is often given a band-aid and never treated fully. We should all walk with a measure of, am I too proud to see my sin? Let's also not overlook the fact that pride is painful and miserable 
and lonely. Not just for those around you, it certainly is painful for them, but it is also a lonely place. And just to recap, pride lurks in each one of our hearts. Pride is at the root of our sin nature. It's something that we were born with and that we all struggle with and all will struggle with for the rest of our lives. Pride lurks in each one of our hearts. Next, let's clearly define humility. Let's talk about humility. I'm afraid that in our culture... We have defined humility to be more synonymous with some of the following descriptors. Humility looks like, in our culture, accommodation. Always letting others have their way. Or it looks like indecisiveness. Meaning a hesitancy to make decisions and lead strongly or boldly. Or it looks like insecurity, a head hung low, always teary-eyed. Or it looks like a pacifist, not a fighter. Someone always quiet and tender in tone. Or someone always meeting my perceived needs. How do you define humility? When you say, that's a humble person, what's going through your mind when you say, that is a humble person? St. Augustine said this, humility is the foundation of all the other virtues. Hence, in the soul in which this virtue does not exist, there cannot be any other virtue except in mere appearance. That humility is at the core. Humility is, is certainly a, an item that's tough to define. Just like pride. Pride is tough to define. But if we survey the Scriptures, we can find this sense of what humility looks like. And to stand on that and not stand on the way we would prefer humility to look. I want to quote Piper here, or very much a paraphrase here. I'm going to give you some scriptures. I would encourage you to go read these scriptures this week. Put together for yourself a theology of humility. So I'm going to rattle through these, but just trying to paint a picture. So you may not get all of the pixels of this picture or all of the precise colors, but, but grab the passages, grab some of the main thoughts, and go study this this week. The first thought is this. Humility begins with the sense of subordination to God in Christ. Matthew 10, 24. To put it another way, it begins with us understanding our position before God. Right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom and humility in the Proverbs are tied very closely. An understanding of your position before God. Matthew 10, 24. Second, humility does not return evil for evil. 
It's not a life driven by perceived rights even. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but handled, handed his cause over to him who judges rightly. 1 Peter 2, 21-23. This is the Lord he is speaking of here. Three, and listen carefully, humility asserts truth not to bolster ego with control or with triumphs in debate, but as service to Christ and love to the adversary. Love rejoices in the truth. 1 Corinthians 13.6 Love rejoices in the truth. Number four, humility knows it is dependent on grace for all knowing and believing. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Meaning, as though you had not been given it. From someone else. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Number five, and lastly, humility knows it is fallible. Again, hear both sides of this coin here. It knows it's fallible, and so considers criticism and learns from it. But humility also knows that God has made provision for human conviction and that He calls us to persuade others. Proverbs 12, 15 and 2 Corinthians 5, 11. See, so in this picture that you see being painted here, sometimes it is quiet and tender in tone. Sometimes it is passive. Other times, it is forthright and asserting, assertive and bold. Another guy, Paul Carter, Okay, kind of three, I think, summary points. Kind of, I want to give these to you in the same fashion I did Piper's thoughts. He would say these three things. Humility is this. Utter dependence on God's mercy in Christ. Luke 18, 10-14. Utter dependence on God's mercy in Christ. That's kind of where Piper's at the first point is humility begins with a sense of subordination to God in Christ. Utter dependence and subordination to God. Two, an unconcern for power, prestige, and position. Matthew 23, 8. An unconcern for power, prestige, and position. Number three, an unquestioning acceptance of God's word. Isaiah 66, 2. An unquestioning acceptance of God's word. Again, can you see where some of these lead to? Can you imagine someone having a quiet, submissive heart before the Lord? while having 
a bold and forthright presence before man and it still be humility. If I could summarize, humility in many ways is this. I don't think this is a a full, robust definition by any means. But maybe I could simply say something like this. Knowing my place under God, wholly dependent on Him for everything. Everything. Life and righteousness. Everything. So knowing my place under God, wholly dependent on Him for everything, I therefore boldly live for God's defined good for others. I boldly live for God's defined good for others. His definition of what is good for others. And I live for that. Now, let's think about humility in application. Because this passage doesn't just stay high and lofty on the ideas of submission. But where he takes us to this is this idea of be humble and submit to your elders. For the record, I just started my timer. I forgot that I did not start my timer. So, according to my timer, I still have an hour left. Nope. Nope. <laughs> Be humble and submit to your elders. First Peter 5, 5 and following the He says, this likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, the root here is humility. The heart issue is humility. The fruit in this particular passage in application is submission. The root is humility. The fruit is submission. Now, in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, Peter was just telling the elders to shepherd and rule over the flock, and and he gives the manner at which that should look, and now he turns to the rest of the church. He says, you who are younger. Now, what does he mean by younger? If you get a little grammar nerdy with me here for a second, the the term here is is the comparative form of of the adjective, meaning it's, it's meant to compare things together or with, each, with one another. The term here used refers to those who were not elders, meaning those who were not, for whatever reason, good or bad, were not in the, the qualified and in the position of eldership. So that is to say, all other church members, that's who he is speaking to. And to them, he says this, be subject to the elders. He's referring to submission. Submission. Now I want to give you my operational definition of submission as I am working through this. It's joyfully and actively placing yourself under the authority of another and trusting them to lead you. 
Submission is not a, I'm going to sit around and wait to be told what to do. Submission is not just duty, but joy. Submission also involves trust. So with that, joyfully, actively placing ourselves under the authority of another, trusting them to lead you, to lead us. Very clearly in this passage, all those who are not elders are to be submissive. To quote someone else, to yield, to follow, to defer, even to obey the elders of the church. This is where humility leads us. This relationship with your elders is such a beautiful and glorious gift from the Lord. As I was reading this week, there are only two options. A church member can obey and submit, or he or she can stiffen and rebel. There is no middle ground. Apathy is quiet rebellion. To quote someone specifically here, he says this, If you see the value of spiritual leadership, and you recognize that God has placed that leadership in the church for your benefit, whether or not you see the benefit, then the only response is to obey and submit to your spiritual leaders. He says these words, To rebel is to commit spiritual anarchy. It is to disobey Jesus. He goes on, Whether it's popular or not, The Lord of the church has determined that His body works with a plurality of leaders and faithful members who value obedience and submission as a joyful responsibility. Many of us know the joy and the delight of submitting to elders. I do. And I struggle greatly with pride. But I see that God has chosen to exercise His authority in my life through His Word, which is brought to me in large part through my elders. Even when there's times where maybe I don't agree, or I don't like it, or I don't understand And we might be asking this question, maybe you are, maybe you're not, but to what extent, to what extent do I submit? To what extent? I'm going to flesh this out, so I'm going to spend a few extra minutes here. That's why I didn't start my clock until. It's just, it's just a hard question to ask. Like how, do you, how do you draw this line? There's no way to draw this line real clean and neat because it just... It just doesn't. The Scriptures don't. So we have to talk about the principles of it. So as we've been talking about, even last week, but even in Christ's local, that that our elders are called to lead us to maturity in Christ through teaching us the Word, applying the Word to life, and being examples. Lead us to maturity in Christ. Ephesians 4.12, He gave us shepherds. For what purpose? To help us grow to the full stature of Christ. So your elders are here to help you know the Lord, trust the Lord, know the good life in Him right now, and to hope in the good life when the King and our Savior returns. They're here to help us keep our eyes toward heaven. 
So let me ask you this question. What areas of life does that include and what areas does it not? You tell me. Becoming like Jesus touches everything. It touches everything. Now, I know, I know. I'm not too naive to understand that in some of us, even in this room, might recoil to that. Well, let's keep painting this picture. Let's put more paint up on the canvas. To the extent to which they imitate Christ and adhere to the teaching of the Word, you should submit to them. Now, I must give a quick caveat here. It's amazing how easy we can find loopholes when it comes to submission. Well, that doesn't feel like Jesus. How quickly and certainly we can say things like, well, that isn't Jesus. I don't need to submit. I would encourage you, search the Scriptures. Make sure it is clear from the Scriptures with no hermeneutical gymnastics or poor application. And that there is objective denial of the Scriptures. But you say, what if I find myself in a place where I can't submit to the elders because in your conscience they're not faithful to the Word? Maybe they have a different ethos. Or maybe they're doing things you don't think are best. Here's my encouragement to you. In humility, seek to understand and be unified with their point of view. If you can't, go find elders you can submit to. You're allowed to do that. That is okay. Now let's look at the Practical delight. I I think these couple words would help us when it comes to the idea of submitting to elders. Again, we're still putting paint up on this picture, right? Because at this point, all you've heard is they can tell me what to do in everything of life, right? That's what you've heard so far. So let's put more paint up on the picture. I I think it would be helpful to think of it like this. Think of spiritual authority in terms of directly— And think of much of life and the practicals and the pragmatics and the wisdom of life more indirectly. Think directly, spiritual authority. That authority in the spiritual realm of life is going to indirectly affect the practicals of daily life. So let me give you some examples. Spiritual authority. You should believe this way. That's what's happening right now. From the word, church, you should believe this way. I'm speaking directly with spiritual authority from the word of God to your soul. Believe this way. You should act this way. You should behold these promises. You should let the word curve your thinking like this. Paul encourages Timothy to command and teach these things. He is exercising spiritual authority. But now, let's talk about the practical decisions of your daily life. There's an indirect authority here. Listen, elders are not going to say, nor should they say, buy this car and don't buy that car. 
Now, they might be like, hey, that's a piece of junk. I don't know why you would ever buy that thing. But they're not making a moral declaration. If you would be righteous, you would choose car A. If you would be unrighteous, you will choose car B. They're not going to, they should not do that. That would be like in that controlling, like they're not controlling in the nitty gritty of people's lives. That's not their place. They're not going to say you should take this job or not this job. Again, they can say, hey, I think it would be wise for this one, you know. I, I don't know if I would take the money because there's also these bad things. I mean, they, that's some general, but to make a moral declaration that to choose this would be righteous and choose this. I mean, unless, of course, it is a job that is clearly unrighteous, right? However, let's go back to the car and the job situation. An elder could say, buying that car seems like it could be a poor stewardship of God's resources. Could it be that you're being self-indulgent and not gracious to those around you? Maybe you're going to lock up your finances such that you cannot be gracious. And they can ask that question. That's spiritual authority coming to bear on even some of these practical decisions. Or the elders could say, you know, if you take that job, I'm afraid it could lead you to neglect your family. I don't think you should take that. It's going to take you away from your kids too much. It's going to take you away from your husband's responsibilities too much. Or from your church. I don't know how you can fulfill these biblical imperatives with this career. So listen, they don't, your elders do not have absolute authority over your lives, but they are certainly responsible for it. So listen, if your elders are not going against the Scriptures clearly and objectively, then you should submit, follow, even obey what they ask you to do. Now listen, submission requires trust. It requires trust. Sometimes trust is broken. Sometimes because we don't have eyes to see the truth. Sometimes because we see it clearly and they're not trustworthy. But let me remind you of Proverbs 26.12. It says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. It's really easy for us to appear to be submitting when really the only person we really trust is ourselves. Well, if I, if you could just convince me, then I'll submit. Well, but then who are you submitting to? You're the one that sits in authority over I just need to have more details. Again, that's lacking trust and submission. Submission requires trust. And the humble enjoy trusting their leaders. They are not wise in their own eyes. That doesn't mean they're not thoughtful or thinking or they just follow blindly. That's not the point. 
but it is the proud who think they are wise in their own eyes. So if I, from my seat and vantage point, I can make all the right judgments myself. Let's talk about the harm when submission does not happen, and then we'll land on the glory of submission. Hebrews 13, 17, I'd encourage you to go read that this week. Three ways in which it is harmful when we do not submit. The first way, it's harmful to the elders, in part because it robs them of joy. Two, it's harmful to the follower. Why? Because it robs them of effective application of eldership in their lives. And three, it's harmful to the body. It's harmful to the body. Let me quote a guy named Matt. Not me, Matt. Matt Schmucker is his name. That's a great name, isn't it? I hope he never listens to this recording. Uh, he's, he's talking about Hebrews thirteen seventeen. He says it's a, it's a plural pronoun, the you. Meaning the whole church then will find it harmful when even a few members rebel against the spiritual leaders of the church. Why? He goes on. As the church, we are mysteriously woven together in the bonds of Jesus Christ. Every church becomes a family of believers who must learn to live with each other, labor with each other, learn with each other, and face adversities with each other. One person's attitude affects the whole church. When someone in the church openly rebels or becomes secretly agitated toward the elders, the whole body in one way or another is affected. On the flip side, the sweet aroma of submission to the elders brings effectiveness to God's means of grace through the elders to the whole body. The sweet aroma of those who would follow Christ as they follow their leaders brings great joy and increases the effectiveness of their shepherds. Now we're going to come back to this humility in a second, but I I don't want us to miss that, again, that the root of submission is a heart of humility. It's a posture. To put it another way, this humility that leads to submission, it's love's response to God's love for us. What happens is we see Him showing us love by giving us leaders who are leading us to Jesus. And so in response, we lovingly submit. Our leaders leaders love us. They want what's good for us. I'm saying this from a posture of I'm with you as I submit to my elders I know they love me. They want what's good for me. They want me to hope in Christ, to treasure Christ, to walk free of my slavery to sin. And so in response, I submit. Let me land on this. The glory of submission. The glory of submission. I'm simply going to quote a lady named Rebecca Merkel. She says this. 
Submission itself is what's so glorious. And that is because the willing submission of one equal to another, a submission offered out of love and not out of servitude, is a submission that pictures Christ. Christ, who, as Philippians 2, 6 tells us, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Christ was equal with God but willingly humbled himself. He offered himself up in submission to God the Father and not because he was inferior. But what is the end of the story when Christ submits to the Father, she goes on, even to the point of death on the cross? Quoting Philippians, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, that submission, she ends with this, ends in exaltation. It ends in glory. He is lifted up and given the name that is above every name. To paraphrase her now, we need to stop being so offended or so scared of being asked to submit. Christ did not consider it robbery to humble himself and submit to an equal, and neither should we. And when we submit, we are enacting a story that's at the heart of all of history, the most glorious story ever told. When I gladly submit to my elders, my equals, I am painting a picture of the most glorious story ever told. The last thing I want you to see is this, the church, a gathering of the humble, the church a gathering of the humble. By necessity, this is what it is. Again, I feel like I've just been rereading 5, 5 through 6 the whole time, but we shall read it again. Starting the second part of verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, and humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may, what? Exalt our nature, we've talked about this a little bit already, our nature is to be proud. If that's at the root of our sin nature, left to ourselves, we will be the center of our universe and our own chief concern. We think in terms of how everything relates to us. We're the center of gravity. We trust ourselves, we trust our resources. To quote someone, if we succeed, we say, wow, look at what I've done. When we fail, We say, I didn't have the resources I needed. Self-reliance as sense of merit runs strong in each one of our bones. It can look like the following. The proud can be boisterous and rude. The proud can also be quiet and passive. 
The proud can look like a sweet lady walking in perfection and self-righteousness. The proud can look like a jerk publicly giving full vent to his rage. Believers understand that sin runs deep. That pride runs deep. David, in his famous lament over his sin, in Psalm 51, verse 5, says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What this means is that we deserve none of God's favor. Pride runs deep in all of our souls. We deserve not God's grace. Instead, we deserve opposition from God. Right? And what's Peter say? God opposes the proud. When we hear that phrase, that's what we deserve. We should look at that and go, that's what I deserve. Remember, he's talking to supposed believers. He's not talking to the people outside these walls. He's not talking to the people on the other side of the metaphorical aisle. This is a gospel principle. It's essential for a saving relationship with God. It is also vital for human relationships too. God opposes the proud and he brings the proud down low. Oh. Peter, I believe, is quoting or rephrasing, if you will, Proverbs 3.34. He said, toward the scorners, he, being God, is scornful. But to the humble, he gives favor. So listen, just in practical application here, you and I will never experience the good life and the blessings of God when we are walking in pride. In exchange, what we will experience is God's opposition. In Christian community, we might experience God's opposition. In our families, God's opposition. In our minds, emotions, God's opposition. But can't you even see the grace, even in that? That instead of letting us head down long. Hey, see, I moved to the side of the pulpit. Jeff said I couldn't. Just wanted to make sure you saw that. I'm going to do this side now. We can move long, headlong into pride. Headlong into it and for God to begin putting opposition in our way that instead of seeing this all the way to its end ultimately eternity away from God that his opposition would would stand in our way but what's he say here again by definition A church is a gathering of the humble. Here's how. We are confident of our worth. Since we know God created us in his image and valued us enough to send his son for us. Right? We are confident of our worth. We're not insecure in our worth. A humble person is not insecure in their worth. They're confident of their worth because they believe what God has said. Yet, every believer is also aware of his sin and desperate need. Every true disciple of 
God has repented and continues to repent. They've repented of this prideful and rebellion that runs deep in their bones and they continue to repent of the ongoing struggle with the same. And we know that we are incapable of transformation unto holiness, yet we trust in Christ for forgiveness and to restore us. And when we walk in this kind of humility, it says that God gives grace to the humble. Like what Karen Jobes said, a commentator on 1 Peter, she says, true humility, true humility as opposed to a contrived, self-degrading in humiliation flows from recognizing one's complete dependence on God and is expressed by the acceptance of one's role and position in God's economy. And Peter says that we take this humility and we, we put it on like a garment, that we clothe ourselves that we seek this actively. But I think this is why we've got all these visible postures that we mistake for humility. Things like self-degradation or wimping around or always gentle and never forceful. We, we try to paint the outside of the bowl. It's easier to make the outside of the bowl look humble than it is to internally know and embrace complete dependence on God. That's harder So what we do is we just put on these outward clothes that make us look humble, or so we think. So how do we put this clothing on our souls? I think Peter hints at this in this passage. He says these words, under the mighty hand of God. How do we put on this humility? How do we put on these clothes? He's hinting at it. I think what he's saying is this. The events of the world are under His mighty hand. You see, the contrast here is that the proud stand in judgment over God and His mighty hand. But the humble place themselves under God, recognizing and embracing His mighty hand. The truth is this. In pride, we all want to be the ones with the mighty hand. I want to be the one with the mighty hands. We were created to seek God's glory, but in the fall, our glory seeking turned inward. And we're all born with that. We have turned in our pride. And to preserve our glory, we often pretend to be someone or something that we are not. We strike poses that convey strength and confidence or false humility and meekness. We might persuade others, someone said, but it is dangerous if we persuade ourselves. In our mighty hands, we want to create laws for others and ourselves to meet. Pride directs us inward to our sufficiency and power, but humility drives us upward to dependence on the Lord. You see, the gospel brings us low first and lifts us up second. It first brings us low in humility because it leads us to confess that we are sinners 
that we are unrighteous, that God is not, that He is holy. God opposes the proud. You see that the gospel is first a destroyer of our self-righteousness, our pride, our self-sufficiency. It's not just, we don't just turn to God. It's a recognition, what are we turning from? Turning from self-righteousness, from self-sufficiency, from self-sovereign views. That we have no hope except in God's sovereign mercy. We can do nothing to redeem ourselves. We must wholly depend on Jesus, the Son of God who died for our sins and was raised for our justification. You see, it's when we're presented with the holiness of God and the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we see, and God opens our eyes to see that, we begin to recognize our inability to be right with God apart from Jesus. And the pride, by His grace, begins to shrink, and we begin to be humbled. Then, the gospel exalts us just as it did Jesus. It exalts us because it demonstrates that the Lord sets great value on us and loves us. To come to the Lord as He is offered in the gospel is to be humbled and exalted. We become children of God, He tells us. We become heirs to the throne, He tells us. We become adopted, He tells us. We become called with a purpose. And don't miss the context. Elders are given to help you walk this hard but glorious path. When we are in sin, we will experience the opposition of the Lord. But when we are humble, It says He gives grace. He gives grace. Let me close with this story from Charles Spurgeon. I'll read the story and then then I'll pray. He says this, Many years ago, a certain prince visited the Spanish galleys. Uh, The Spanish galleys were a, a ship primarily propelled by oars from people who were sentenced to a life of rowing these big ships around. So he says, many years ago, a certain prince visited the Spanish galleys where a large number of convicts were confined, chained to their oars to toil on without relief. He says, I think nearly all of them condemned to a life sentence. Being a great prince, the king of Spain told him that he might, in honor of his visit, set free any one of the galley slaves he chose. He went down among them to choose his man. He said to one, Man, how did you come here? He replied, That false witnesses swore away his character. Ah, said the prince, and passed on. He went to the next who stated that he had done something 
I'm sorry, went to the next, who stated that he had done nothing that was wrong, certainly, and that he ought not to have been condemned. Ah, said the prince, and again passed on. He went the round and found that they were all good fellows, all convicted by mistake. At last he came to the one who said, You ask me why I came here. I am ashamed to say that I richly deserve it. I'm guilty. I cannot for a moment say that I'm not. And if I die at this oar, I thoroughly deserve the punishment. In fact, I think it a mercy that my life is spared me. The prince stopped and said, It is a pity such a bad fellow as you should be placed amongst such a number of innocent people. I will set you free. He goes on, My Lord Jesus Christ has come here at this time to set somebody free. He has come here at this time to pardon somebody's sins. You who have no sins shall have no pardon. You good people shall die in your sins. But you guilty ones who humble yourselves under the hand of God, my master thinks that it is a pity that you should be among these self-righteous people. So come right away and trust your Savior and obtain life eternal through His precious blood. Let's pray. Father, I I simply pray and ask if you that you would help us to be humble. That you would help us to be humble. That you would help us to see that we are the galley slave whose life is in slavery to our sin and our wickedness and our pride. And yet till this moment you have spared our lives in mercy, giving us time to turn in repentance and faith, to humble ourselves under your mighty hand. Father, help us to believe that one day for those who turn in faith and repentance from their pride to humility and dependence on the cross will one day be exalted. Will one day stand around the throne of the King, our Savior, our Lord, Jesus Christ. And they will stand with Him, singing praises in submission to Him. And this will be a place of exaltation. It will be a place where these humbled, exalted, once sinners, now redeemed, saved by grace, children will dance around the throne saying, holy, holy, holy is our Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Father, I pray that by your Spirit, the power of your Word, that you would make this so in your people. For your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.